this is Mona, and you are listening to A Devil's Tale. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a solo episode by me, and we're going to cover two stories. Both are from Japan, and this episode also marks the last episode of season two. So, without further ado, let's dive into today's first story. In 1945, Japan was forced to sign an unconditional surrender to end World War II in Asia. The country suffered a terrible social crisis due to the traumatic consequences of being in a war. Besides the fact that most of Japan's population were stagnated in the worst misery, they also experienced a very interesting social phenomenon—a massive baby boom. It's believed that this phenomenon is linked to the great number of postponed marriages over the war, or even couples that were forcibly separated due to the war. But it's also linked to this need to bring life back to normal, to form a family and move on from those traumatic experiences. It's estimated that only in Japan, about 2.6 million babies were born annually from 1947 to 1949. We know that the post-war babies are actually called baby boomers, but the numbers in Japan were just over the top. Miyuki Ishikawa. Born 1897, was a Japanese midwife and serial killer who is believed to have murdered many infants with the aid of several accomplices throughout the 1940s. It is estimated that her victims numbered between 85 to 169. When she was finally apprehended, much of Miyuki's early life is unknown. She attended and graduated the University of Tokyo, later marrying Takeshi Ishikawa. Miyuki's career led to her being a midwife at the Kotobuki Maternity Hospital and then becoming its director. As abortion wasn't legal in Japan during this time, many couples were having children they were not able to financially take care of. Miyuki saw this and also knew that charitable resources were sparse. Through cold calculation, she decided it would be best if the children were killed. While the other midwives in the hospital knew of the practice, the local government ignored the death. This resulted in multiple midwives leaving the hospital. If the act of killing the defenseless wasn't repulsive enough, Miyuki then enlisted her husband and a doctor to take advantage of the situation. Doctor Shiro Nakayama drew up false death certificates for the infants that were killed, and Miyuki's husband went around asking the parents for large sums of money, telling them that it would be cheaper to pay them instead of raising the child. After the Waseda police found five baby corpses, an investigation led to the arrest of Miyuki, her husband, and the doctor. A citywide search also led to the discovery of 40 infant corpses in a mortician's house and 30 more under a temple. During the trial, Miyuki argued that the parents who deserted the children were responsible for their deaths. This defense received support from a large section of the public, a fact that was reflected in Japanese law, 
which gave infants almost no rights. Consequently, Miyuki was sentenced to eight years of prison. For their part, Miyuki's husband and Dr. Nakayama received only four years imprisonment. Miyuki and her husband even managed to halve their sentences through an appeal. This incident is regarded as the principal reason the Japanese government began to consider the legalization of abortion in Japan. One of the reasons this incident was thought to have occurred was as a result of an increase in the number of unwanted infants born in Japan. On July 13, 1948, the Eugenic Protection Law, now the Mother's Body Protection Law, and a national examination system for midwives was established. Today's second story is one of the most disturbing stories I have read throughout my research for true crime cases. Our story begins on a Sunday morning after the parents of 15-year-old Aiwa Matsuo called the police when Aiwa didn't come home the night before. Aiwa had left the house at 3 p.m. on Saturday after telling her parents that she would be shopping with a classmate. The day before. Aiwa had gone out to meet with some friends and go shopping. By the end of the night, however, one of her classmates invited Aiwa over to her apartment. Little did Aiwa know that this classmate, her friend, would end up taking her life. For the purpose of the story, I will be calling this classmate K, since she was never really named to protect her since she was a minor. After a day of shopping and hanging out. Aiwa went over to Kay's place to hang out some more. Kay actually lived in an apartment alone. Her father decided that it would be best for Kay to live alone and got her an apartment because of one incident that made him terrified of his own daughter. Kay's mom died of cancer on October 2013. By January of 2014, her father remarried. I don't know for sure if this is what caused Kay to be agitated, but it was reported that she attacked her father with a metal baseball bat and injured him pretty badly because she got so mad. Kay's dad arranged for her to live alone and away from him and his new wife. This gave Kay all the freedom that she needed to commit this gruesome murder. Since Kay lived alone. She and Aiwa had the apartment all to themselves, and it was at 8 p.m. that Saturday when Kay took Aiwa's life. She hit Aiwa with a metal object and then proceeded to strangle her. Aiwa died right then and there on Kay's bed. On Sunday morning, the police arrived at Kay's apartment to look for Aiwa. However, I don't know for sure how the police figured out to look for Aiwa in Kay's apartment. We do know that they were able to access the messages that the two girls sent to each other, which shows Kay inviting Aiwa over. The police ended up discovering the dead body of Aiwa laying on Kay's bed with her head and left hand severed. Kay admitted to the crime there and then and was arrested by the police. When asked why and how she did it, Kay said, "I wanted to kill someone and dissect a dead body." I bought the tools by myself. In fact, when police looked through her online activity, it was revealed that she posted photos of a bloody hand on an online forum the night of the murder, and even asked questions like, "Help me! How do I make the blood stop?" 
It feels like it just keeps on pouring out of her body, even though I wiped and wiped and wiped. She also posted another message: "What color is the brain, so I can check?" This event caused an uproar within the community, especially since just ten years ago, another murder was committed by a schoolgirl within school grounds. The schools were urged to conduct activities and make ways to make sure the students are reminded of the sanctity of life. During the trials, it was argued that Kay couldn't be tried for murder on the reasons that she was mentally unstable when the murder was committed. However, the prosecution found evidence that Kay was in fact researching about cases that can be filed against juvenile murderers. This was enough proof for the prosecution that Kay had committed premeditated murder and that she could be tried for it. In July of 2014, Kay's father also apologized to the family for what his daughter had done, saying that his daughter's actions can never be forgiven for any reason or cause. He later hung himself on October of the same year. In 2014. Three officials of Nagasaki Prefectural Child Consultation Center were officially reprimanded by the government after it was revealed that they failed to take action, even after a psychiatrist who examined Kay after she hit her father had actually contacted the consultation center to tell them that if Kay is left as she is, she could kill somebody. Today, schools in Japan are trying harder to remind students of the sanctity of life, trying to prevent yet another murder committed to and by a minor. The most shocking part of the story for me personally is the fact that Kay never really had any motives. Aiwa never did anything bad to her, and she didn't hate Aiwa. The reason that she killed Aiwa was simply because she could. And to me, that is very disturbing and bone chilling. Before I end today's episode, I just want to thank you all for listening to us for two seasons now. We're going to take a two-week, maybe three-week break before we start season three. While you're waiting for season three, we will be posting shorter episodes of fun urban legends during those three weeks. So please stay tuned. And the other thing that I wanted to tell you guys is that Aliyah and I probably will be changing our format a little bit for season three. As much as we enjoy doing different cases each episode, we also thought it would be fun to do maybe just two cases per season and really go into details of each case. So please stay tuned for our new format, and we are very excited to share season three with you. To all of our listeners, thank you for all of your support so far. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at a devil's tale. Please say hi in the comment section and feel free to DM us. If you have any feedback and story requests, you can email us at adevilstale@gmail.com. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe if you have enjoyed all the stories so far. Thank you so much for tuning in again, and we will see you next time.